Hey, another great episode of Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you heard, please go online to redsearadio.org and donate, become a monthly sustaining member, and keep us on the air. Thank you and God bless. It is Wednesday, May 2nd, 2018, and this is the Red Sea Roundup. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Beauvais. Today, in the second part of our program, we'll be visiting with Deacon Ron Walker. He's the chancellor for the Diocese of Austin, and he's also the director of Deacons. But uh, in the first part of our program, we'll be talking about our current events and uh, speak to Tina Sip a little bit from the African Children's Choir. And we want to welcome everyone listening to us on KEDC 88.5 FM Hearn Bryan College Station and also welcome our Central Texas listeners on KYAR 98.3 FM Lorena Waco and also our listeners in Palestine on KINF 107.9 FM. Our second part of the program is going to be pre-recorded so we won't be taking any phone calls, but the first part is live. So if you have anything that you would like to mention about your parish activities, feel free to give us a call on 85-LOVE-RED-C. That's 855-683-7332. And I would be remiss if I did not say welcome to our producer and station manager, Thaddeus Romanski. How are you, Thaddeus? Good morning, Deacon. Man, that is a rousing introduction. Love it. I'm feeling good. Feeling good. How are well, you doing? I am happy to be here if yeah, you can't tell. I can tell. Definitely can tell. Thank you. Yeah, things are going well. We're getting ready to uh, have our biannual Catholic Community Showcase next week, Tuesday and Wednesday. That is where we kind of interrupt our normal programming and we do a block of live in studio with a few pre-recorded interviews here and there from nine to five on Tuesday and Wednesday. And we kind of showcase the Catholic thing as it's lived out here in the Bryan College Station area. And it's exclusive to to KEDC, to 88.5. We're not going to broadcast this in Lorena, Waco. We're not going to, you know, put it down in Palestine. It's just here for the Brazos Valley. And it's, it's fun and we really give you a kind of an inside look at what parish life looks like and also the interface uh, with some of the Catholic groups that are not strictly parish-related and also some um, non-Catholic groups that nevertheless are doing you know, good work in, in this community and that Catholics aren't involved in as just members of, of this area. Um, so we encourage you to listen. Go ahead and, and lock that in on your calendar that we're going to be on the air giving you a slice of Brazos Valley Catholic life from 8 to 5 on next Tuesday and Wednesday. And our sister stations will just enjoy the normal programming mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. we usually have scheduled mm-hmm. during the week. But for those here in Hearn Bryan College Station, listen and uh, 
actively think about, you know, how you might get involved in some of these things that are going on in the parishes and in the communities, Mm -hmm. because we are called to be active members of our church. Yeah. And so it'll be a great opportunity for you to find out what exactly is going on and how you might fit in the puzzle. Yeah. We hope that it will kind of maybe lift the, uh, lift the, the curtain uh, on some of the, the groups in the different parishes. And, and yeah, maybe that will help people um, be a little less reluctant or more encouraged to to step out there and say, you know, I can fit that into my monthly schedule or my, or my weekly schedule. Um, and also I want to say that the folks that are listening in Lorena, Waco or down in Palestine, this is something that we hope to bring to those communities eventually. So start thinking about uh, how you can get that going up in, in Waco. Um, you know, petition Stephanie Lee to let's get this, let's get this going for say the fall in, um, up in Waco. And if you're active in a ministry or in uh, part of your parish life, take a kitchen spoon and practice speaking into a microphone and prepare yourself <laughs> for being on the air. Yeah. Um, we have a couple of things coming up here in the Bryan College Station area that I would be remiss if I did not mention. Uh, the first being on May 6th is St. Joseph's 38th Annual Parish Festival. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be at the St. Anthony Pavilion Grounds on Tabor Road in Bryan, and it'll begin at 11 a.m. with a barbecue dinner. It have a live and silent auction, variety of food items, a raffle, games for all ages, and fun-filled activities for the entire family. Everyone's invited. If you have not been to a parish festival, shame on you, but uh, check it out because these things are absolutely wonderful. I've had the privilege of going to several different parishes' festivals. Each one of them is unique. But all of them are absolutely wonderful, and you get to meet some of the nicest people and uh, take uh, the opportunity on May 6th to uh, go out to St. Joseph's Parish Festival. Also, and um, this is, of course, important to me because it's for St. Anthony's, our 54th annual bazaar (laughs) Yes, is on May 20th, and... um, If you are listening and you're a member of St. Anthony's, there are still plenty of opportunities to volunteer, Mm. to donate items uh, for the auctions and things like this. And I'm sure that for St. Joseph's also that uh, there's an opportunity for uh, people to still chip in. And this is important for any of the parish festivals and the bazaars. People are needed to help out. So here's your opportunity to, again, step up, and uh, it doesn't require a full-day commitment. Say you're going to be there for an hour to help with this or that, or that you'll make a donation for one of the uh, raffles or uh, other items, and uh, it's an opportunity to take an active part in your parish life. Mm-hmm. Say something else about um, something that's somewhat new over at St. Anthony's, and that's the um, relic observation and mass on um, Tuesdays, yes? Yes. Talk a little bit about that. Yes. Um, 
this is an opportunity since we have been oh, which blessed. Which is open to everyone in the Yes, in the anybody. Uh, you don't have to belong to St. Anthony's. Anyone's yeah. welcome. But every Tuesday since we have received the first-class relic of St. Anthony, we have a Mass in honor of St. Anthony on Tuesdays. But prior to that, just to remember that we have our priorities correct, we have Eucharistic adoration beginning at 4.30 that leads mm -hmm. up to the Mass. Mm -hmm. And then after Eucharistic adoration uh, um, and the benediction, we have uh, a Mass usually dedicated to St. Anthony, unless there's a feast day scheduled for that Tuesday. And then we have a litany and prayer service to uh, St. Anthony asking for his intercession. And uh, then there's a blessing um, at the end of that. But it's a wonderful opportunity, especially if you have a great devotion to St. Anthony's, and many people in our community do, that you have the opportunity to come and pray for the intercession. And one could also say, if any of our non-Catholic friends are listening, if you want to get the full-on Catholic thing in one shot— Boy, go there. You got Eucharistic adoration, a saint's relic, a litany to a saint, mass. I mean, you're going to be able to see the full panoply of Catholic life on display. Just in what does that take, about an hour and a half, uh, two hours? Uh, figure uh, two hours, but it's usually over with uh, just under an, uh, two hours, yeah. uh, hour 15 minutes, hour 30. But... Uh, it's also a great opportunity to see what exactly it is that the church does when it talks about venerating a relic. And, yeah, talk uh, about that for a second. Well, the emphasis is always on Jesus, and this is so often misunderstood. Uh, we believe, as Scripture says, that there are saints in heaven that pray for us. The uh, book of Revelation is very plain that there are the holy ones that carry our prayers to God. Right. And so— as a reminder to all of us, um, we want to make sure that um, everyone understands that when we pray for the intercession of a saint, we are asking them to join us in prayer. And we just happen to recognize that they're already in the presence of God. Yeah. So it's a local call rather than long distance. <laughs> So, but uh, we emphasize the fact that what we're asking for is someone to pray for us yeah. to Jesus, who is the source of all the graces and blessings that we receive. Right. And we make sure that, uh, especially in the prayer service, that uh, we emphasize yeah. that we're asking for intercession to Jesus. There's a very old prayer to St. Anthony asking for his intercession in which it says, you know, please whisper my intention yes. in the ear of the infant Jesus. Yes, and that is part of our... <sighs> Such a wonderful yes, image. Yes, it is part of our uh, prayer. Yes. All right. One of the things that we also wanted to do is the African Children's Choir is coming back to Brian. So we're going to take a few moments to talk to Tina Sip about this wonderful opportunity for you to listen to some beautiful voices. Tina, are you there? I sure am. So can you tell us a little bit about the African Children's Choir for those that have not heard them before or heard about them before, which if you're, they're listening to our radio station, they probably have, but just in case. 
Yes, we are a, a Christian nonprofit organization, uh, Music for Life, that sponsors the African Children's Choir. And essentially, we're trying to provide education for as many orphaned and impoverished children in East Africa as we can. Uh, unlike the West, education is just not uh, really accessible to all children there, even government schools. There is some cost attached, and the families that we're dealing with, the children we're dealing with, it's just beyond their means. And so without education, very difficult to break the cycle of poverty. So we are trying to stand in the gap for as many children as we can, get them an education so that they can become not only self-sustaining, but to give back to their countries and to uh, what we call to be change makers and influence their communities for Christ. Now, I looked on the website and it mentioned that this got started back in 1984 in Uganda. How long have you been involved with this? Uh, This is uh, 15 years for me um, this year. And um, so I've been out on tour and I have done some booking for the choir. And and now as choir manager, I just oversee our tours. And uh, what anything that happens on tour is is uh, what I'm concerned with. So, yeah, I've been with them a long time. It's not hard for me to get up and do my job in the morning. Well, but I imagine that dealing with children, it's always a new experience because I have found that predicting what children are going to do is extremely difficult. <laughs> yeah, you know, these children are pretty amazing. Um, they are full of life. They are incredibly talented, incredibly bright, and so curious. And um, I think people are also just very much struck by their resiliency, their hope, their joy, and they are just really wonderful people to be around. They have such an interesting, different, fresh perspective on life and priorities. And I would say that probably any of us Westerners that have worked with them have been delightfully changed um, by their influence and their love of life um, on any given day. And um, yeah, they, they're curious and they're learning a lot when they're on tour. They're experiencing so many new things and uh, getting a vision for their own lives and also really improving their English, which is critical to their schooling when they get back home. Their education is paid through college once they're in the choir, and so they have a very bright future ahead of them, and this is just kind of the launching uh, event of their life, really. I was going to ask a different question, but what you just answered brought something else to mind. By providing an education... Would it be fair to say that in a small way you're actually changing the dynamics of where they come from because now these children are going to be able to contribute something they would not have been able to contribute without this program? Absolutely. That's really our long-term goal. You know, I think any one life is important, and uh, we are certainly wanting to impact real lives and encouraging people to do that with us. You know, select one child and help help them get on the, tra- the trajectory that God would have for them. Uh, but yes, the longer term goal would be that we would raise, you know, Af- the children are Africa's future, just as they are here. And so to intentionally and strategically invest in children now so that they can influence their communities later, very much our goal. And, and absolutely, we hope that they will receive to give back and uh, not miss what uh, is being given to them so graciously. How many children are on the tour with this group right now? Mm-hmm. We have 18 children from Uganda. They're ages 8 to 10, and uh, they are uh, just 
a spirited, talented. Uh, the performance is just full of energy. Um, lots of lots of colorful costuming. Lots of traditional dance. It's just it's moving and inspiring as well as entertaining. And I think people leave, you know, with a, a little hop in their step, right? Um, they it's it's hard not to enjoy the African Children's Choir. That you know, people are pretty blown away by the the quality of the program, but I think even more by the spirit of the children and just changes their perspective a little bit. It uh, gets us back to what's really important and the economy of God. You know, are these children really poor? Uh, not in poor in spirit, that's for sure. And it, it just kind of causes you to to take a minute and say, wait a minute, you know, what's what's God's definition of wealth and poverty? And um, and so I think it's good for the West as well as uh, good for the children from Africa, for sure. And I think that's a beautiful point you're making, that, you know, happiness is not determined by the things that we have. It is determined by what we have experienced and how we perceive it. And this is, you know, something that we really need to relearn in the West because we have placed all our emphasis on happiness as it relates to stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a wonderful opportunity for people to see that that is not the norm. Mm, not at all. Not at all. Now, where is the performance in Bryan going to be? Yes, uh, we will be uh, performing uh, here in June at the. Um, oh, you know what? I just I just pulled it up here. It is at the uh, Church of the Nazarene on Friday evening, June 8th at 7 p.m. And if someone's interested in going, do they need tickets or do can they just show up? Or Yeah, they can just show up. We take a love offering. And so we would ask people to come prepared to, to invest in our children and uh, to give the amount that they can so that... Um, these children are really given the opportunity that, that they deserve. And, uh, and so we, we are unashamed to ask people to make a profound difference in changing the whole course, the whole narrative of these lives of these children. And uh, so, yeah, just a love offering. We also have a sponsorship program. We have lots of product from Africa and music that people can purchase as well. And, uh, and so we would love for people to come and support us. And just as a reminder... This is not you're paying. Uh, you're not paying for a form of entertainment. You're changing lives, and exactly. you have the opportunity, you know, to make a dramatic impact in the lives of these young children who are basically giving up, you know, part of their childhood uh, at home to show the world, you know, that we're all the same. Hmm. Yeah, they're uh, they're wonderful ambassadors for their countries and their communities. And, uh, you know, I think, I think in our media, Africa is kind of portrayed maybe just its challenges, you know, and I think the children are wonderful ambassadors to show a different side, the rich, the richness of the culture and the the resiliency of the people and, uh, the hope that they have their default is the Lord. Um, not, they don't rely, they can't rely on their finances and their insurance and their 401k, you know, the, the, their reliance is on the Lord. And, and um, again, I just think that they they communicate that in a very unique way from the stage. And um, it's, it's, it's very gripping. Uh, people in the West are very, I think it touches 
um, that that part of our soul that the Lord wants to touch, you know, and um, and so they they're an, they're an interesting messenger <laughs> of the good news, and so yeah, it's like I said, it's kind of a it's a wonderful program. There's no question about that, but but there's so much more to a African children's choir concert. There's just so much more, and uh, we'd hate people we'd hate for people to miss that. We hope you know it's good for all ages. It's it's uh, it just kind of transcends all boundaries and barriers anybody well that's our time i'm sorry to interrupt you but thank you for what you're doing and again this is on friday june 8th at church of the nazarene on william joel bryan parkway we're going to take a break right now and when we come back we will be talking to deacon ron walker the chancellor of the diocese of austin we'll see you on the other side And we are back. Welcome back to the Red Sea Roundup. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Beauvais. And as promised, we're going to be talking to Deacon Ron Walker, the chancellor for our Austin Diocese and the director of deacons. As I mentioned earlier, this is pre-recorded, so you won't be able to call in. But I'm sure that um, the conversation will be interesting for all of us because most of us probably don't know what the role of chancellor is. So, Deacon Ron Walker, welcome to the Red Sea Roundup. Thank you, Michael. That's uh, very enthusiastic. Did not did not know you had it in you there. Glad to see it. <laughs> <laughs> um, as I mentioned, this is pre-recorded. Which uh, the reason we had to do this is you're not actually in town, so you're traveling. That's right. That's right. So I am sitting in a hotel and right now in Washington, D.C. I'm attending a conference here uh, for the um, diocesan attorneys, uh, attorneys who represent um, dioceses throughout the U.S. We get together oh, uh, once a year, usually about this time of the year, and have a nice uh, conference, uh, spend a little time in mass and prayer together, also then exchange a lot of ideas and information Still continuing education as well, so it's a it's a nice program. And uh, today uh, we actually heard a, a great exhortation about uh, the the role of uh, legal counsel for the diocese. It's from Archbishop Laurie of, uh, of Baltimore, so it was a it was a great exhortation for us. So good good things happening. Since you brought up the nature of the meeting and. Um your role as chancellor, the background, you're a lawyer, right? That's correct. That's correct. So uh, a chancellor for a diocese does not have to be an attorney, although uh, probably more recently, um, at least in the United States, um, we're seeing a a small trend that a number of times chancellors or vice chancellors will also be serving as in-house legal counsel for the dioceses. Um, depending on the size of the dioceses and their needs, there'll be different structures uh, for for that. And not every diocese throughout the United States has in-house counsel. 
but I believe that um, there are last count that I heard is there about, there's about 80 attorneys who serve as in-house counsel, probably representing them. I'm guessing at that somewhere around the nature of about 60 different dioceses have in-house counsel. Um, so, uh, like myself and our vice chancellor Nancy Sander, uh, we're both attorneys. Uh, handle a lot of in-house counsel work for the diocese, but then we also will use outside counsel primarily for litigation issues, uh, but other times for uh, consultation or um, you know more specialized areas that need uh, a specialist. Now, is there a particular uh, form of law that uh, is more helpful? I mean, canon law, of course, is probably one thing that is a requirement, at least some uh, training in it. But what legal specialty is helpful? Well, yes, you're, you're correct. So basically, an in-house counsel for diocese, the size of the Diocese of Austin, would be much akin to, um, like, corporate in-house counsel for a, a larger organization. So uh, diocesan-wide, we have 120 or so parishes. Uh, we have uh, um, between the diocese uh, and all of the parishes uh, taken together, there are 1,500 employees uh, that the diocese has. And so there are questions that come up with regard to uh, labor issues. Uh, there's structure issues from because uh, each parish is a separate nonprofit corporation. Uh, there's obviously property issues because every parish owns properties. Uh, then we have uh, issues that, that will pop up with you know, all sorts of uh, legal questions one way or the other. So, for example, uh, just a few minutes ago, I finished a session that talked about um, uh, receiving our schools. Um, if they receive federal funding, what are the downsides uh, to that and what are the cautions that we have to be careful about um, in balancing our uh, Catholic teachings and having the right to uh, maintain our Catholic teachings unfettered from any restrictions that might come as a result from federal funding or at least attempts to do so. Uh, so, so interesting questions like that pop up all the time. So the role of the chancellor, is it primarily to guide the bishop in these sort of uh, issues with legal questions for the parishes and the diocese, or is there uh, other role, aspects? Right, right. My role would be, I could answer that in the affirmative. Um, I think um, worldwide, um, the chancellor is a uh, under church law, under canon law, uh, every diocese is to have a chancellor. So the bishop is to appoint a chancellor. Um, and that chancellor, for all practical purposes, would be at least, uh, we would see him as the custodian of the records. He is in charge of the documents for the diocese. And so he takes care of the archives. Uh, from my perspective, we have good people that do uh, that, uh, that that's delegated to, and then they uh, report to me about the issues dealing with the diocesan archives, historical matters. Related to that, we'll um, assist and work with parishes on their sacramental records, for example, which are very important to the, to the church, um, all the records of the parishes, how they uh, maintain their records, and then what records they are to 
submit to the diocesan archives. So the archival system within the church has got a lot of history. And so the chancellor, that's common to every chancellor throughout the world. Um, and then also the chancellor, that's another common matter. He is known as the, um, the uh, ecclesiastical notary for the bishop. <laughs> so he stands before the world or the civil authorities and properly attests to the fact of who the bishop is and uh, that he has been properly installed and make sure that those kinds of uh, documents are properly submitted to the Holy See. Uh, after those two main things, the, the role of the chancellor will vary from diocese to diocese depending on um, the needs of the bishop or the diocese itself. So, for example, I have a lot of my, my fellow chancellors uh, throughout the United States. Some of them serve more of a role like a COO, um, operations manager. Others will serve more in terms of um, will be heavily involved if they're priests or deacons, heavily involved in vocations or dealing with pastoral matters um, or, you know, uh, problems that come up from my uh, pastoral side or sacramental side dealing with parishes. In my case, um, it's, it's heavily involved on the legal side. Um, and there's probably a handful of us, about uh, six or seven throughout the United States as chancellors or as vice chancellors that also serve in legal capacity. So it just depends on what uh, you know the bishop has, um, what situations he has in his diocese, and the human resources that he has to fill all those different roles, and then he'll assign the chancellor those duties um, that best suits uh, that particular diocese. Now, I'm going to take it you haven't always been a chancellor. What did you no. do prior to becoming chancellor for the Austin Diocese? I um, came, became chancellor in 2006. I was originally first appointed as, as vice chancellor, and then about six months later as the chancellor. Um, and uh, came over in 2006 under uh, Bishop Amon, now Archbishop of New Orleans. And um, prior to that time, I worked um, in as general counsel for a large trade association and did a lot of administrative type work, corporate work, and legislative type of work. Um, and so um, I had a heavy background in real estate uh, law, and so that was very helpful from property issues as well. Um, but I was ordained in 2000, and, um, and then, uh, like I said, in 2006, Bishop Amond asked me to come over. Could you tell us a little bit about your call to the diaconate? Oh, absolutely. Um, probably like most deacons, there was a, a um, from very early times, there was a love of the church. So I grew up as Catholic, uh, baptized as an infant, and uh, had uh, some great parents who were Catholic um, and strong Catholics. And, um, you know, even my grandparents were strong Catholics. So everything was, um, our lives very much focused around the church. There was a lot of joy growing up around the church. And uh, so I had this uh, desire to always um, have the church uh, as a significant part of our lives. So my wife and I met in law school, and um, immediately out of law school, we uh, we moved to Austin and, and then located there um, at the cathedral, and our kids began going to the cathedral school. 
Um, so going to Catholic schools is important to me uh, growing up, and so I want to make sure my kids had that great experience as well. And um, then as we became involved in the church, um, another deacon approached me, as did our rector of the cathedral at the time, and asked me to uh, start being involved as a catechist, and then eventually said that I should consider the diaconate. Um, and so I went and visited the bishop, um, and uh, he uh, he and I spoke, and the next thing I knew, I was in uh, in formations. <laughs> um, then it was uh, I actually entered into formation, and my kids were very young. I think the oldest was about uh, was about six or seven, and the youngest was about two. And uh, so then, uh, uh, about four years later, was ordained in 2000, and things. Um, Things took off, and uh, so that that became a great uh, a, a great gift to me because um, uh, I think that it is in service that we find um, not only are we given but we are beginning to receive so many great things from the church and from other people, uh, and uh, just just love it very much. Love being a deacon. I know the feeling. Uh, right. The chancellors that you know. Are most of them priests, most of them deacons, or how does that usually skew? Um, we're finding that um, less some of them um, are becoming priests. I, I would think that most of them still are priests. I haven't looked at the numbers in quite a while. Um, I, I still think that most of the chancellors are priests, although I think there's out of necessity um, that role of chancellor is being given now to many deacons. Um, again, I don't know the numbers, but my guess is there would be um, a dozen, if not more, deacons throughout the United States um, who are chancellors or vice chancellors, and it wouldn't surprise me if that number uh, would be in the 20s now, um, and that um, we're also seeing that there are a number of laypersons um, who are uh, becoming chancellors or vice chancellors. And in fact, um, I just met uh, several lawyers here at this conference that I didn't know that they were also uh, chancellors. Um, and one of the things with the great gift of the diaconate, uh, the permanent diaconate here, is that uh, you know, 50 years later after it being installed, or reinstalled, I guess, uh, in the church, at least in the United States, uh, we're finding uh, that there is a continuing trend to see that deacons are um, more and more employed um, in roles in the church, whether that's as chancellor or serving in formation programs or in the tribunal or in the local parishes as pastoral associates or religious education directors. We're seeing um, seeing that increase uh, growing, I think, rather rapidly. And I think sometimes we forget that the permanent diaconate is new again uh, in the church, and that the role of the permanent deacon is still being discerned by the church, how they're going to serve in the modern age. Absolutely. So it was only a short 50 years ago after Vatican II that the United States bishops um, said, okay, now we can uh, begin to ordain men to be permanent deacons, um, not looking to be ordained as priests, uh, and to live as laypersons, but yet also um, 
now also live as clergy. Um, and so um, in the short 50 years, um, every diocese has, um, you know, slowly developed uh, good formation programs about who to select as these permanent deacons, how to form them, what these formation programs should look like, and then what their roles are. Um, and uh, it's it's amazing that it's only taken 50 years to um, to see how that's flourished. Uh, but it, it continues to evolve in terms of, um, you know, how the deacon, the permanent deacon will will be able to serve the church, uh, not only here in the United States, but I think throughout the world. But the U.S. has been a real leader in that regard. And it's possible that be in the United States, having the experience of the permanent diaconate for a longer period of time, that it may serve as a guide for some of the other areas of the world that as of yet don't have them and aren't sure how they're going to fit in. Absolutely. Yeah, you, you're there in College Station, you have that, that great deacon down there at St. Thomas Aquinas, Pat Moran, who recently uh, went uh, and uh, began serving in Nicaragua. And um, he's just returned, and I, have, I just talked to him the other day. And one of the things I want to ask him, I haven't asked him yet, is whether or not the the bishop there has talked to him about, you know, forming men to be deacons, permanent deacons there in his diocese. Um, I had the the um, privilege of traveling to South America, oh, maybe uh, five or six years ago, and was talking to a bishop um, there in Bolivia, and um, he was very interested in our program and uh, invited me to actually come down there and live for about two years to initiate their program. But it wasn't going to work for me. But <laughs> it was uh, they are they are looking to the United States, and uh, that could be we may see deacons going and and in, um, into uh, South and Latin America to uh, uh, to do just that. It wouldn't surprise me. Well, and especially as, you know, situations like Deacon Pat being in Nicaragua and the bishop there seeing what the deacon can help with, what he can be involved with, and may, you know, change his perception of, you know, what he thought previously the role of a deacon might be in uh, his diocese. Absolutely. I think I think we may end up seeing that with many of the dioceses now, as chancellor, what do you consider some of the biggest challenges in your role? Um, in my role, uh, I have to uh, deal with some of the difficulties that are uh, uh, faced in the church, what I many times recall the, the human difficulties in the church. And of course, as a lawyer, that means when um, uh, someone's not happy of what's been going on. They feel as though they have not been treated properly or that things have not gone well. So that's always difficult uh, for me. And, and probably for um, the most, the most difficult thing for me um, has been in my consultations with uh, deacons or in as priests who um are having personal issues um, and problems when they begin to question their own voca- vocation. Um, that's that's the most tragic to me, at least. It's uh, very painful. Uh, but you know, our bishops—that's part of their role to um, to deal with that. And all the bishops have led that uh, those issues, I think, very well. Um, 
at least uh, Bishop Vasquez and Bishop Amond, as well as their auxiliaries, um, and they have this great love of the priesthood and the great love of uh, the diaconate, um, and really want to uh, in, uh, continue to support the men in those roles. And when circumstances dictate that they have to step aside, that's never easy. That's, that's the most painful thing. On the flip side, what do you consider the best part about being chancellor? Oh, the best part is always uh, seeing the guys uh, come in as uh, priests and deacons and seeing them being formed. Um, and, of course, the, the greatest celebrations are the ordinations themselves because that's the uh, sort of the, the, the crowning jewel and the crown there that's, uh, that, that says, okay, you know, uh, now the men are formed and they're being sent out um, as clergy. That's just uh, that's just the greatest joy for me. And the other remarkable thing for me is to see um, how our uh, laity supports uh, the church and the men in the clergy, uh, just to see how how much uh, support our, our laity gives to our priests and our deacons. And they're just so proud of them, and they're just so happy when things like that happen. Um, you know, there's no doubt that any time that um, our priests or deacons need support from our parishioners, uh, they're just there. They're just ready. And it, it's just a um, great comfort to know and, and great joy to see that happen when, that, when, that, when that's there. Uh, so that, that's, that's the happiest thing for me. I would imagine that you have to have a fairly close relationship with uh, our Bishop Joe Vasquez in your day-to-day work. Uh, how would you describe that relationship that you have with a bishop? Oh, it's great. It, it is a uh, very professional relationship, yet very, uh, very close friendship in terms of things uh, of how one works. Um, and, um, you know, Bishop Vasquez is, is uh, very open with his staff about what he hopes uh, that we accomplish, and then he, he sets high expectations for us as well. And it challenges us, and we really want to respond. And uh, everyone that works at the pastoral center of the diocese, you know, they, they, they just are uh, always wanting to make sure that the bishop is proud of them um, and that they're serving their bishop well. Um, I joke a little bit and say that, you know, Bishop Vasquez uh, comes in the morning usually and stops by my office and is happy to see me. And then by the time we leave, he's ready for me to go home. (laughs) uh, You know, it's just great work and relationship. There's no doubt. But that's probably a challenge given your office because you are sometimes a bearer of bad news. And so, you know, when you— Come to see the bishop. He's probably going. Oh no! There comes the chancellor again. That's right. <laughs> and it's it's funny because uh, sometimes when I uh, uh, call the priest, you know, they'll 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 say, "Oh, Deacon Ron, it's uh, I, I hope it's good to hear from you, but I know it may not be." <laughs> so, it's a, uh, but you know, that's uh, I have to say in 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 defending our priests all the time. Uh, they are our priests are are always very supportive of my role and they're very open um, even in the difficult times the, the, the difficult situations they're just always ready to just get down to work and say okay let's let's, let's if there is a problem let's figure it out and um, uh, just wanting to make sure that it's properly addressed 
And I think that calls for having a good relationship with the pastors and so on, the uh, parochial vicars, that they know they can talk to you when they need to. Right. And I think, um, personally, um, my role is not the role of every uh, diocesan employee is to make sure that the parish knows, especially the pastor knows that um, we are there to uh, serve them and so that they can uh, perform their uh, their mission, right? So that we're there to help them do that. It's always, uh, uh, most times, it, it's, it's a great deal of support going there. Sometimes the it's like uh, correcting the, the, the steering of the ship if it's off course, but uh, where it's a little more difficult. But most times, um, you know, the parishes see the, the assistance as, as a good help um, at the diocese. And that's really what it is, because our faith, as you know, is centered in parish life. So we encounter Christ, hopefully, in the parish and through the parish. And so the bishop wants to make sure that his staff is giving the assistance to the pastors uh, to make that a reality for the faithful. And I think sometimes even we as Catholics fail to realize that the hierarchical structure of the church works from the bottom up, not from the top down, that the faith lives in the parishes, not in Rome or in Austin, and that, you know, all of it works from the bottom up. And it's more a support system from the top rather than a dictatorial uh, model. Right. Absolutely. And I think when um, the bishops and, and the staff, which they do, they all recognize that um, that encountering Christ it happens mostly in the parish and through the parish, then that's really what we want to see uh, enhanced in this diocese is the parishes. Um, there's now there's a lot of important reasons why the parishes then in turn support uh, the bishop and the diocese in being able to do that. So it's this this mutual uh, relationship that goes on, much like a great spousal relationship, right? So. Now we have an auxiliary bishop, Bishop Danny Garcia. Did the role of the chancellor change any with having an auxiliary bishop, or is it just one more person that you have a relationship uh, on a a professional basis? Well, I, um, of course, before uh, Bishop Garcia became uh, was ordained as a bishop, he was uh, appointed as the vicar general mm-hmm. for the diocese. So if you want to look from a hierarchical standpoint, uh, and, and he does retain that title, vicar general. So his title is auxiliary bishop and vicar general. Um, and he also retains the title of what we call moderator of the curia which means that basically he runs the operations at the pastoral center uh, on behalf of Bishop Vosquez. So from a hierarchical standpoint, you know, the bishop is, uh, governs the, the local church, um, and um, then he, um, the vicar general is empowered um, with the full authority that the bishop delegates to him, which is a great deal. And then the chancellor then technically reports to the vicar general, in this case, to um, to Bishop Garcia. So since he was already in that role as vicar general, there wasn't uh, on a practical day-to-day operations too much of a difference. 
Um, now, I will tell you that um, when he was ordained, he took on um, a much larger sacramental role to assist our bishop, primarily in confirmations. And of course, um, he um, took on the role as a bishop now, as a member at the um, United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, and as a direct member of the Texas Conference of Catholic Bishops. So he took on a lot of additional work. Um, and so I think my hope is is that um, when when he did that and, and that began to happen for him, that I was able to step up uh, a little bit more work to try to uh, continue to empower him to do that additional work. Um, but I can assure you that uh, between Bishop Vasquez, Bishop Garcia, myself, and our CFO, uh, Mary Beth Koenig, you know, we, we, we try to work as a, as a good team there to make sure that um, our bishops can, can do what they need to do, of course, being governing the church and, and um, being the sanctifiers that they are, as well as the good teachers that they are. Now, in addition to being the chancellor, you're also the director of deacons. Yes, uh, that is a, another title that I hold. I will uh, tell you that the easiest part of everything that I do in the diocese is direct the ordained deacons. Um, and uh, men like yourself, Michael, are the easiest part of what I do because uh, the deacons are, are, are good men, well-formed. They're working good with their pastors or whoever their canonical supervisors are. Um, they're all eager to do good work, um, so it takes uh, very little concern. And the other thing I'll say that's great about the deacons is that every one of them has somebody watching over their shoulder besides their pastor, and most of and and that's the wives, assuming that their wives haven't passed away yet. So their wives, I want to give great credit to them because um, they will uh, empower the deacons to do the great work that they do. And they're also a great check on them. You know, that's, uh, it, it's almost like uh, uh, the wife will say, you know, this, this is where you need to be, and this is what you need to do, and this is how you need to tweak it. Uh, so I want to give them a, a great, um, a great uh, applaud them greatly for the, for the great work that they do in supporting that. It's not just taking care of the family or taking care of those things. It's, it's really helping the deacon and empower him to be who he needs to be. Um, now, the other piece to being director of deacons is uh, the formation of men who are uh, in that formation program to become or to, to be ordained as deacons. And I have two great um, co-directors that run that program uh, and do um, all of that work, and then they report to me once a week and tell me what's happening, what's going on. Of course, that's Deacon Dan Lupo and Deacon Guadalupe Rodriguez, uh, both work in that capacity. And having gone through the formation program recently and having talked to deacons from other dioceses, uh, our program's to be envied. Uh, from what I hear, it is one of the best programs in the country, if not the best. Right. Uh, you know, you always have that great uh, sense of pride and bias over the good work that that we've uh, been able to create and build on uh, by, you know, our predecessors that had started great programs um, and continue that. And um, they continue to build and, and, and on that program. I think one of the things that really makes our program um, such a good program is the large number of people that 
um, are involved in the formation of a deacon. Um, I remember um, Joanne Sander, who uh, helped run the, the formation program uh, some years back. She used to tell me that uh, there are approximately 100 people who will touch a deacon aspirant or candidate as they go through formation, and whether that be as a instructor teaching a class, or it may be someone who's interviewing them to make sure they're doing things correctly, the guys who are evaluating them from their human perspective, such so as psychology and those issues, the spiritual directors that assist them, and the list goes on and on and on. Uh, she added it up, and she says about 100 people touch every man. And so you get this great um, service uh, from a large number of people informing the men. What opportunity? <laughs> yes. What opportunity do you have to serve as a deacon with all the other roles that you have? Do you still get a chance to preach, to do baptisms and marriages? And um, I do. Um, my role, uh, from a parish perspective, being involved as a deacon at the parish, um, is unfortunately um, reduced, mm -hmm. and that was one of the the hard things that I had to. To, to sort of give up in a way, if you would, when I came uh, and worked at the diocesan level uh, was because, um, you know, the great uh, enjoyment or the great uh, joy that we received in the pastoral work at the parish. Um, and, but uh, I am assigned, um, canonically assigned over to St. Ignatius uh, Martyr Catholic Church in Austin. And uh, so I'm on the the regular mass schedule to um, there and preach occasionally there. Um, and um, I will do baptisms, um, but I would do that in a, and also some weddings and those kinds of things. But compared to all of our other deacons who are, you know, are signed uh, directly at the parishes, um, my schedule there is reduced. Uh, so I, I joke with our pastor, Father John Daughtery a little bit and tell him, I said, Really, you don't have a full deacon in me. You might have a half a deacon if you're lucky. <laughs> so, uh. Well, I tell everybody when I do baptisms, the high point of my ministry is baptisms. So uh, if you're not able to do those on a fairly regular basis, that's a downside to being chancellor. <laughs> it is, it is. But the good news is it's a big parish, and so there's lots of opportunities uh, that we that we have. And so... I'll, I'll usually um, hit our baptism schedule about uh, maybe three times a year or so. So, Well, we're nearing the end of our interview, so um, I want to thank you very much for doing this. I think it's probably extremely enlightening for our uh, listeners because I bet you this is the first time they heard what a chancellor actually does at the diocese. Oh great! Yeah, I'd like to uh, I'd like to also give a big plug to you, Michael, for your great service and for Red Sea Radio, the um, uh, for the apostolate that it does there in reaching so many people and bringing a lot of good information and joy out there. Uh, just remember that uh, I tell I tell all the deacons out there that a chancellor is somebody who uh, will come and speak to you, and everyone will listen to you intently. And then they'll go home and do whatever they want to do. So thank God for that, right? <laughs> yes. Again, thank you very much. And I want to remind everyone, next week, 
uh, Gene Wilhelm will be your host. And uh, until then, when calculating how to serve your fellow man with your time, talent, and treasure, always round up. Thank you.